Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. Happy Pride Month. Change is in the air, and today we're delighted to bring a fresh new voice to the podcast. Debut author Leah Johnson has just released You Should See Me in a Crown, a joyful, hilarious young adult novel about the irrepressible Liz Lighty. Liz thinks that she's too black, too poor, and too awkward to make a splash in her prom-obsessed Midwestern town. But when she meets the new girl at school, who happens to be her competition for prom queen, everything changes. I'm thrilled to welcome the already acclaimed novelist, Leah Johnson, to Scholastic Reads. Hi, Leah. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Congratulations on your debut novel. We are so very proud that Scholastic is publishing you. Tell us, tell our listeners about You Should See Me in a Crown. Yeah, well, first of all, I'm proud to be published by Scholastic, not to sound like an industry plant, but I <laughs> obviously, like like everyone else in uh, America, grew up with a book fair, so having this chance is pretty incredible. Um, so You Should See Me in a Crown is um, a queer YA novel about a girl named Liz Lighty, whose goal is to get out of her small, white, Midwestern hometown and go to college. But those plans are derailed when Liz's financial aid falls through. And so the only alternative is for her to run for prom queen for the scholarship that comes along with that crown. Um, and that's that's a mess just in general because uh, Liz, <laughs> Liz is a wallflower. She's not really cut out for that kind of um, notoriety. And it becomes even more difficult when Liz happens to fall in love with her competition. <laughs> we are here for it. Now, tell us why was this particular story important for you to tell now? You know, I think that's an interesting question um, because of the word now, because this story is has always been important to me and Ha and will continue to be important moving forward. I think there's not nearly enough stories about queer black girls on shelves. And so I knew that growing up, I was very aware of the fact that experiences that reflected the one that I was having weren't easy to access. Um, and so when I became a writer, when I decided that that was what I was going to pursue, it was very clear to me the type of narrative that I wanted to craft because of the space that it felt to me existed for that sort of story. So, um, I just, I've never doubted, I've never doubted the importance of having more stories about, uh, young black girls on shelves, but particularly in my adulthood, as I came into my own queerness, I knew that like part of my mission part of my personal like ethics were going to be about like making books that were more equitable more humane um and more empathetic and so this came out of that need could you talk about how it felt to grow up 
Black and queer and not see yourself reflected in books or the world around you positively, if at all? Yeah, you know, I think what drives me most as a storyteller is the knowledge that growing up, I defined my blackness in opposition to whiteness. Like everything I knew of myself, like all the ideas I had about my identity and what it meant to move through the world in this body was based against what I knew about whiteness. There was such ease to being a white girl uh, when it came to falling in love. There was such ease to being a straight person when it came to going on their first date. Um, And I wasn't experiencing any of that. You know, those were not, that wasn't how I felt when I moved through the world. And so part of why representation becomes so crucial is because we're not only writing books to entertain, we're writing books, especially for children, because books teach children empathy. They give you a blueprint for how you move through the world. And so if there is no blueprint for these kids, if there are these stories, but they're not being championed, they're not being um, marketed aggressively, they're not being... um, they're not being brought into libraries by school administrators and educators. When that is the case for so many of these stories, you have generations of kids like me who don't know what it means to be anything other than an outsider until they get to college and are finally able to take classes in African-American studies, which is what happened to me. And so I'm in the business of telling black kids in particular Um, and specifically queer black kids, you are seen, you are loved. If nobody else has ever told you this, I'm telling you this now, there is a place for you in this world in which you are not alien, in which you are not a stranger. There is a family out there for you, even if you don't feel that in your community now. And so white kids get to be the default, straight kids get to be the default. And and I'm tired of that because that was not the default for me. <laughs> you are really helping so many kids. I have been thinking about this topic from the lens of having grown up. I'm white. I grew up in a mostly white town and went to mostly white schools. So I would add that books like yours also help kids like you be seen and understood and embraced by white kids who are like I was growing up in a homogenous community with a lot of advantages and advantages that were largely brought about by systemic racism. I think absolutely the job of books is to challenge us to think outside of ourselves for a little while. Um, For the 300 some odd pages that I'm reading something, I'm being asked implicitly to not only engage with a story that's different than mine, but I'm being brought into it in a super intimate way. And like that type of intimacy does not exist for folks who grow up in these really homogenous communities where everybody looks like them and thinks like them. And so for a lot of people, these books are the only window into another experience that they will get until they go to college, most likely. Um, And for a lot of white folks, you go to a PWI, a predominantly white institution, and you're still surrounded by white people. And so um, there's there's not really ever the onus placed on uh, white folks to engage critically with stories other than themselves. And so I think that's what 
these books have the ability to do. And maybe it's, maybe I still have rose colored glasses on. Maybe I'm feeling a little idealistic, but I really and truly believe that books are the most efficient and most successful tool for teaching, uh, people across identities, races, uh, sexuality, gender spectrums, teaching us what it means to be someone other than ourselves. Beautifully said. With that, I'd love for you to read a few passages from You Should See Me in a Crown. And if you would, just set the stage for our listeners. The scene that I'm going to read then is between... Mac and Liz. Mac is the love interest. Liz is our main character. Um, They're fresh off of their first date. They're still trying to figure out how they're going to make this relationship work. Mac ends up driving Liz home from school one day and they have this lovely moment next to a cornfield because this book takes place in the Midwest. And so one for one, she asks and I nod, do you actually like running for prom queen? She says, And I have to admit, I'm a little surprised. I wasn't expecting that. I thought this experience was going to be one thing, one big, very cool thing. And it's actually just ridiculously stressful. She looks at me and winces. Is that horrible? No, I start. You have no idea how completely unhorrible that is. Her fingers slip between mine and my lap and my heart does that thing it always does around her now. Like it can't decide whether or not to expand five sizes in my chest or, you know, burst out completely. You're the best part about all of it. She looks down at where our hands are linked. I would deal with the long hours and the bad volunteer gigs and the diatribes by Madame Simone all over again if it meant we would end up here. I stop breathing. I almost don't know how to be with her like this, completely alone, completely vulnerable. I just know that I want to be. I just know that there's nowhere else I'd rather be, in fact, than in this car with Amanda McCarthy as she leans forward and holds my face in her hands. What a storyteller you are. You capture the world of high school so vividly. And I think many kids will relate to those feelings of first love that are tender, joyful, and awkward all at the same time. What do you hope your young readers will take away from this story beyond the sheer joy? You know, Elizabeth Acevedo um, at Well-Read Black Girl Festival uh, last year said this thing that I haven't forgotten, and I bring it into everything I work on now, and that's, um, how can I write this book? How can I write this character so that Black girls who come to the page and see her know that I wrote her with love? And so that's what I want all of my readers to walk away with black girls, especially, but anybody who comes to the page searching for something that they're not finding in their real life. If you don't know if anybody else loves you, if you don't know if anybody else sees you, I want you to know that I see you. Leah, it, it's something also a little unique about your book is that there's a happy ending <laughs> for a black queer teen. <laughs> that doesn't always happen. It may be like almost never. So just the joy of this book, we, we don't want to lose our focus on that too. You know, I grew up in a generation in which like most of the accessible queer texts that we had were still those of trauma. They still had stories in which like queer folks never got the happy endings they deserved. Or if they did get a semi-happy ending, it was after being, 
you know, hate crime in some way. Um, and so what it was really important to me and to my editor actually, which is at every turn, she was like, okay, but make it happier. Okay. But can this be happier? Okay. I'm loving where you're going here, but hear me out even happier. Um, and so, um, you should see me in a crown was an effort to sort of rewrite the canon of, of queer, you know, young adult literature. It's like, what would a story look like if we gave this young black girl the ending that she deserves? What happens if we literally crown her and call her royalty? What does that mean to a reader to see that on the page, right? Like, what does it mean to know that not only can you get the girl in the end, but you can also get the thing that you've been working towards. You can go to the college that you wanted. Your brother is going to be okay. Your grandparents are going to be okay. Every ending doesn't have to be one of trauma. And so like you should see me in a crown is every bit as joyous as a story that I think young people, uh, especially young queer people who are often told they don't deserve to take up the space they take up. Um, I think, I think this gives them space and permission to be all the things that they are and know that none of those things means they don't deserve uh, a happy ending. And the answer to what does that mean? It means everything. You know, I, I hope so. I really do. What was it like to write this book, which really is so close to your heart? You know, it's, so interesting, like answering this question, because if you ask me this on a different day, you'll get a different answer. Some days it's like, oh, it was so stressful. I wrote for seven hours a night and I was working eight jobs and da da da, which, you know, is not all that far from the truth. Today, when I think about the process of writing this book, I'm just filled with this overwhelming sense of gratitude for what this book brought into my life. Um, you know, it really pushed me to confront a lot of the shame and the silence that I had been carrying surrounding my own queerness for such a long time. And so like in the writing of this book, I was not only writing through Liz's struggles with confronting her identity and like being authentic and open, but I was writing those things for myself. So Liz is Liz's journey really parallels mine in a lot of ways. And so like, as you're reading this book, my heart really is in these pages. Like when you see Liz struggling to be honest with the person that she loves about, about coming out or about feeling comfortable holding hands in public, like those are things that very much were weighing on my heart as I was writing the book. And so this brought into my life a sense of honesty and openness that I did not previously think was possible. You dedicate the book to your mom, which is very sweet. And you write, all I am is who you are. Could you tell us about your relationship with her and what those words mean to you? Yeah, my mom is the watch by which I set my entire life. She's steady and sure, and I know that I can count on her. And she has always been this incredible like pillar of strength. I would not be here had I not had the great, overwhelming love and support of my mom. And I know that's like, that's hard to reconcile for people who maybe only hear part of the story where it's like, I'm talking about growing up and like knowing that queerness was not this accepted, understood thing in my house. But it's worth noting that my mom grew as I grew. In a lot of ways, me and my mom were able to grow up together 
And so my mom's politics were becoming a lot more refined, a lot more nuanced at the same time that mine were. We spent so much time in like 2008. I remember in particular, like sitting in front of the TV watching like Rachel Maddow talk about uh, the Obama election. And I just remember that being like a real turning point in our, both of our like political understanding. And so as, as we both grew up in these different ways, my mom, not only my mom had always extended this love to me, like boundless love and grace. She then had become like wholly more empathetic to people who were outside of our our faith tradition or outside of our community. My mom is this great example of what it means to evolve and what it means to admit your wrongdoing and admit where you're falling short or the ways that you don't understand. And that humanity that she has shown has been one of the greatest learning tools of my life. I, I just, I can't speak more highly of my mom. She also like, I wouldn't be a writer if it weren't for her. Like she put books in my hands and like, if we didn't have anything else, we didn't have any other resources. We didn't have any disposable income. You could rest assured that my mom was going to come up with some money so I could go to the book fair. She was going to come up with some money so I could get that order form for book clubs. She was always going to find ways to bring books into the house. And so like she cultivated a love of reading and writing me. And when I told her this wild dream, I was like, mom, I want to give up this path of journalism that I had been on. I, I was a reporter before I became a writer, a fiction writer. I was like, I don't want to do it anymore. I just, I don't love it the way I used to love it. And she said, okay, well, what do you love? I said, I, I, I love writing. I want to be a fiction writer. She said, all right, let's do it. What do we got to do? You, you're going <laughs> to go to New York. You want to go to grad school. That's what you're into. Fine. Go like, you need, you need some money. We don't have it, but I'll find it, you know? And so my mom is, my mom is truly the, the giants on, on whose shoulders I stand. I think that the greatest gift a parent can give is to learn from their child. <laughs> you know, I was lucky enough to have parents like that. And it, it's the greatest blessing of my life. Truly. I, I think it's, it's, it's extraordinary. And here your mom now has a debut author. <laughs> right. She must be so thrilled. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, it certainly is outside of, like, I always say like, I can't believe this. I can't believe I'm here. I can't believe I'm doing this. And my mom's response is I can. And I'm always like, well, okay. Like, wow. Thanks. Like what faith you had in me, even when I didn't believe that it was possible. Uh, you better be careful because your mom is going to start autographing copies of your book for people. <laughs> right. Well, you know what? My mom has been, she has been hand selling this book like nobody's business. I have never seen anything like it. A force to be reckoned with. Like when I, I like the, you know, I remember telling her what the book was about and she like, she didn't even hesitate before she was like, she just started screaming along with me, you know, like so enthusiastic about the, the potential for putting this book out in the world. And of course, at the time I was like, uh, my mom is never going to be able to vibe with this. Like, even though I, somewhere in the back of my head, my mind, I knew that my mom's love for me was unconditional. Somehow I thought this was the one condition writing a queer novel. I was like, this is the one condition that she won't be able to move fast. And my mom has been more than anyone else in my life, the most loudly supportive and enthusiastic advocate for this book. Oh, I hope parents listening take a lesson from her. That is just spectacular. Uh, I would love to hear a little bit more about what it was like to grow up in Indiana. 
Oh, Suzanne. Yes. I love talking about growing up in Indiana. <laughs> so, you know, I think it's James Baldwin who has this quote, like, I love America. And because I love America, I criticize her endlessly. Um, because that feels like that feels to me as though it's the greatest form of love is to identify like all the places you're falling short and to tell you like, look, if you want to hold my body with care, then these are the things that you need to do. And so this book is as much a love letter to Indiana as it is an indictment of, um, of the community that I grew up in. It's this really beautiful state. And I think like a lot of folks maybe would not imagine that, you know, soybean fields and cornfields are all that beautiful. But, um, to me, when I think about the best parts of summer, when I think of, um, the most beautiful parts of Americana, I think of driving with my windows down past cornfields on, uh, Dan Jones, um, you know, listening to John Mayer with my family. I just, that's Indiana to me is this really lovely, you know, illustration of what it means to be grounded in the earth, which is a woo-woo thing to say, but we are very deeply reliant. Our economy is very deeply reliant on the land that we live on. And so in that way, it's just, it's super grounding, but it's also like, a really small town feel, you know, like everybody knows everybody. I grew up in the same school system, um, you know, from the time I was in kindergarten to the time I graduated high school. And so I went to school with the same people for most of my life. Um, my families were intertwined with other families for the course of my life. And so like we developed this really strong community out where I live. And so, um, those are the things I think of most frequently when I think of what it means to have grown up here. Um, even though I talk a lot in the book about, um, you know, the like racism and <laughs> latent homophobia of growing up in a rural adjacent, like predominantly white community. Um, it's, it's important to me that like my love of this place also shines through and that's cause it really was a beautiful place to grow up. And, now that I live in New York, I couldn't imagine being a kid in New York City. Like that's that's I was like, you guys don't run around barefoot, like you know, like that's not part of your you don't go down to the creek and, and grab crawdads with your big brother with your jeans rolled up to your knees, you know, like that's that's the kind of stuff that I was doing growing up. Um, and those are my fondest memories. I have to say, two of my nephews grew up in New York City and they're pretty worldly now, which is great to see. I love this place, but man, it's flawed. But how could I, how would this experience have been different? How would I have been different had I not grown up here? I wouldn't have turned out to be this person if I hadn't been raised in that environment. And so, you know, there's also this overwhelming gratitude for that experience. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. I, it makes me think of teens now. I mean, while we're in this pandemic, it's got to be hard for them not to be able to experience prom, graduations, and other milestones as you did. Uh, I think even friendships in quarantine have to be very different than the ones in the cafeteria. You know, what message do you have for those kids out there who were like you? I grew up in the Tumblr generation. And so like for a lot of us, the most community we had was online. Um, you know, we found each other in these blogs and these weird dark corners of the internet. Um, 
it was like the island of the misfit toys, you know? And so, um, in that way, this very much speak, this moment very much speaks to that experience. Is that like, you all are going to rely on virtual community in the way that, um, like all folks, all people, regardless of identity background, um, are going to rely on online community the way that, you know, the Island of the Misfit Toys has always relied on online communities. And so, um, it feels really strange. Um, but I would encourage you to lean into that strangeness one. Um, but two, um, I know that one of the issues with like virtual community is that, uh, a lot of young people have had to go back home to places where they're not able to be out. They're not able to be the full self, their full selves. They're not able to use the correct pronouns. Um, oftentimes you're, you're going by, uh, your dead name because that, those are the names that you have to use and the pronouns you have to use to be safe in those communities. I can't imagine the level of tension and the level of fear that comes along with that as a cis, uh, woman who you know, uses the same pronouns I was assigned at birth or same gender I was assigned at birth. But I would say, hold on. Um, there are people out there who love you and see you and care for you. And this moment, like all moments will pass and you will get on the, get out to the other side and we'll be waiting for you with open arms back in our, back in our dark corners of the internet. <laughs> What's the one thing you wish your teenage self knew that you know now? So many things. One, those bangs are not a good move, kiddo. So maybe rethink them. Um, but I would say also like, Leah, you don't have to crack that joke about yourself. You know, you don't have to crack that joke about yourself in hopes that the person next to you won't crack it first. I think I was doing a lot of preemptive self-deprecation when I was in high school because I, I was like, this is the way that I can take control of this narrative. And it's like, Leah, you are a harsher critic than anybody around you. And so you can, you can stop, you know, being mean to yourself under the guise of comedy. Okay, though, we would love to get that photo of you with bangs that we could promote the podcast with. Oh, my gosh. You know what? I, I had to lock down all my Facebook albums when the book got announced because I was like, I, I'm not letting anybody get anywhere near like 2011 to 2014, Leah. She was going through it. Fair enough. I did want to ask you about that. You spoke of James Baldwin earlier about the quote at the beginning of your book. He says, the place in which I'll fit will not exist until I make it. Uh, could you tell me what that means to you? It looks like you did great. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I knew that there were a lot of spaces that I was occupying and have occupied since and will continue to occupy that had not made room for me in my totality and my wholeness. And so I got to college and realized especially I had like started taking classes in African-American studies because that was my double major. And I had started engaging critically with issues of race theory. So for the first time in my life, I realized that like community isn't something that just happens. Community is a thing that is actively cultivated. And so if I want to be a part of something that makes me feel cared for and held, 
then what I have to do is dig into that, dive into it wholeheartedly. And so I got to college and I like, I was, I joined the black student union. I joined the national association of black journalists. I built up a, a friend group um, that was predominantly black folks for the first time in my life. And so that was, that was when I realized like, wow, okay. So, so we can, we can have this, I can have this, I can do this and I can be surrounded by people who get where I'm coming from. And so that's the work that I carried into writing this book. I was like, okay, so if this was a book that I didn't have when I was 15 years old, then I have to create that book. I have to create that space for young people who feel anywhere close to how I feel even now as an adult. And so that was the guiding principle that, you know, ushered crown into the world. Well, that's so profound. I hope our listeners rewind and really listen to that (laughs) carefully, what you just said, because so beautifully stated and and perfect. If Baldwin were alive today, what would you want to say to him? Thank you. There there aren't enough words. I mean, you know, I, I I was talking about pride with a friend of mine earlier today and about how like in a lot of ways, like pride has been co-opted by corporate media and capitalism and all these things. But like, I still have to pay homage to the foremothers who made pride possible. That's my goal always. And everything that I'm creating is like, I have to reach back and give honor to the people who made space for me to be here. So that's Baldwin, that's Audre Lorde, that's Nina Simone. That's like, you know, there's so many artists whose work influences the work that I'm trying to do now, not just as a writer, but as somebody who's interested in cultivating like an artistic community. And so, yeah, I, I owe them everything. Yeah, we all do. I'm a journalist still. (laughs) Ida B. Wells, I mean, Fannie Lou Hammer, the, the change they risk their lives for, um, it's just remarkable what they endured. I mean, I feel like if Baldwin, if I could see Baldwin, I mean, he is one of my heroes too, but I feel like as a white person, the first thing I would need to say is I'm sorry. I am so sorry. I mean, one just cries reading his work and it was so long ago now and yet it still holds. Yeah. You know, he has this, he has this quote, uh, he did this interview and it's a clip that I return to frequently where he says, you know, I've been told since I was a child to wait for change. Like, just wait, it's coming. Just wait, it's coming. And he died waiting for that, that change that was promised, you know, like he was, he was constantly writing himself and writing the rest of us into a form of liberatory politics. We're still in many ways waiting for the change that was promised when Baldwin was a child, when any of the, the activists, artists that like made space for any of us to be here, we're still fighting against railing against a lot of the same issues. And I think that like most of the work that many of us are doing is just like picking up the torch that they left us. Like we're just carrying it into a new generation and trying to find new ways to maybe write through it, dig into it, explore it. And I'm glad you brought up Ida B. Wells because, you know, one of the journalists who I most admire, the book that I wrote, in my thesis, the one that will probably never make it out of a drawer. And for good reason. Um, <laughs> Along with a photo with the bangs. <laughs> was, uh, the book was inspired by a story that was reported by Nicole Hannah-Jones. I think all the time about the work that she's doing and how that is in a direct lineage of 
generations of black women reporters who came before her and like what that means for all of us and what that means for like where we are and where we're headed. And so, yeah, I'm always, I'm always thinking about, I'm always thinking about lineage, always thinking about ancestry and the way those, those things bleed into all the work that we do. I'm so moved by your book, by speaking with you and by your efforts. And I hope we can all work together to bring about that change that Baldwin challenged us to so many years ago. Thank you. Thank you. That means a lot to me. I, I am really glad that I am not the only person out here doing this work. All it takes, we've been doing this for generations, but all it took was for somebody to open the door and be like, okay, I see what you're doing. I catch the vision. Let's make it happen. And so, you know, I've been really fortunate to have a super supportive team at Scholastic that like have helped elevate this book to a level of visibility that would not have been possible for a book like this a decade ago. And I I can't wait until this no longer feels like an anomaly until this is the norm. Yeah. I, and just thinking of the children coming after and the teens who will have this experience because of you, the way you had the experience with Baldwin is just priceless. <laughs> well, if anybody ever looks at me the way that I look at Baldwin, I honestly, you know what? I'll retire right then. That's it. <laughs> I've done my job. <laughs> well, congratulations, Leah. You should see me in a crown is a tour de force. So I'm sure you're a little tired right now, but I'd love to know what you're working on next. I'm sure your readers would too. Yeah, I am uh, just a smidge tired of uh, global <laughs> pandemic will do that to you, I think. But um, <laughs> I am currently revising my sophomore novel, Rise to the Sun. It takes place over four days at a music festival. It stars Tony and Olivia, two girls who have had some pretty tough years and are going to this festival in search of a very specific type of joy. And along the way they find each other. And because it's a Leah Johnson book, of course they fall in love. It wouldn't be complete without that. Oh, well, that's great. We need more love in this world. I'm thrilled to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much again to author Leah Johnson for joining me today. And thank you for listening. To learn more about Leah's debut novel, You Should See Me in a Crown, and to get resources for Pride Month, check the show notes or go to scholastic.com slash podcast. Special thanks to producer Bridget Benjamin, associate producer Mackenzie Catrizula, sound engineer Daniel Jordan, and music composer Lucas Elliott Eberle. I'm Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads next time.